Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm Matt. I'm Gin Jenny. And I'm Whiskey Jenny. Hello, everyone. (laughs) So, Spectology is a book club podcast. Each month, we pick a book, read it, and talk about it over the course of two episodes. This is our kind of full spoilers post-read episode for The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie. Uh, which we all just read together. So there's a previous episode, our pre-read episode on the book 14.1 came out a few weeks ago. Uh, You can go listen to that if you want to kind of like hear about the book and the context of it, you know, why you might want to read it. Um, If you haven't done it yet, this book, we're going to be kind of full spoilers the whole way (laughs) through. Um, And then, yeah, uh, I should let also our guests introduce themselves, Gin Jenny and Whiskey Jenny from the Reading the End podcast. Yeah, that's basically it for us. We're from the Reading the End podcast. I'm Jen Jenny. Um, We have been podcasting together for a really long time. Whiskey Jenny, I don't know, like five years? I think that's right. We should look up when our anniversary is. Oh, yeah. Separate to this. (laughs) (laughs) That also means listeners, big back catalog, huge amount of great content. Very, very cool podcast. I love going back to the really old ones, which apparently are the only ones I've actually listened to. I don't know if I've listened to the recent one. <laughs> I probably have, actually. Well, we're so thrilled to be here. We had a blast last time, so we're excited to be back to talk about the full contents of the Raven Tower. Yeah, thank you. Can't wait. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you guys so much for coming back and doing thank this you. with us. It's it's a ton of fun for us. So today we are going to, again, talk about the Raven Tower in depth. Like I said earlier, we're going to be doing spoilers from the get-go here uh if you you know don't like that go go listen to the other episode or read the book it was good we liked um so yeah actually speaking of uh i guess other thing kind of other content warnings for the book if folks are reading it for our discussion i honestly can't think of anything like too much off the top of my head um i don't know if there's anything that anyone else picked up on that they wanted to call out yeah not really it was i mean you know there's some like pretty uh minimal violence uh mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah nothing it, nothing that i would necessarily want to tra- flag for i agree with that yeah i mean there's also there is a, you know and we'll be taught i guess it's the like i said in the other one like there's a lot of talk of sort of like gender and gender issues in the book i'm sure we'll be hitting on some of that we're all cis people if that is you know a thing for you just just know that but i think that otherwise it's all yeah i think this is the least content warning <laughs> necessary <laughs> book that we've read <laughs> um, which is which is nice um it so is yeah nice. actually uh i don't know which you guys want to kind of go first on the book but we'll sort of like do a little round robin of our of our own thoughts and we'll get into the deeper kind of discussion of themes and plot and all that sure um well i can go um do it so this is my first Anne Leckie book, um, and I would say uh, it, it really zips along. I was very engaged and like enjoyed it a lot the whole time I was reading. It was a very fast read. I was excited to see what was going to happen. Um, I read the end multiple times as I was going through the book, um, which was kind of cool because mm. I was getting more out of it the more I went on. Um, so it was a very enjoyable read. Um, I would say when we recorded our uh, pre-read podcast, we were talking about um, comps for this book, and I mentioned um, Alexandra Mm. Rowland's A Conspiracy of Truths um, as something that seemed kind of similar to me. Um, And I was super right. This book is a lot like (laughs) A Conspiracy of Truths. (laughs) Nailed it. Um, Both in the general way it feels, but also in the things that I found slightly unsatisfying about it. Um, Mm. In both cases, I enjoyed the books a lot, and and they deal with the rise and fall of regimes. Um, But they're also both books where the protagonist slash narrator is kind of stuck in one 
place and is pulling strings from the place that they're at. Um, and to me, it made, despite how enjoyable the books were, it made them feel a little bit static. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll get into the Hamlet of it all, but uh, <laughs> I also don't like Hamlet. So I think that probably, <laughs> even though I didn't realize this was Hamlet until well after I'd finished it, um, I, I do think that that kind of diminished my enjoyment somewhat. Yeah, totally. Legit. Matt, do you want to give your... Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I won't waste time sort of describing the book. I guess mm-hmm. I, um, at a high level, I, I loved it. I love Anne Lucky. This is the, I guess, fourth Anne Lucky book that I've read. And cause I read her, uh, first, uh, famous trilogy, Hugo winning trilogy, the ancillary trilogy. Um, but this is actually not her first, I think we talked about it, not her first fantasy novel cause, or not her first fantasy published fantasy story because she published some fantasy short stories apparently way back in the day. And, uh, oh. and in an interview I read, she referred to this as a return for her. And so it felt oh, like, cool, interesting. which is, which is neat. But, um, I really like, there's a lot of things I really like about it. I'll just name a few. I really love, uh, the um, one of the central conceits of the book, um, the way that everything that a god says has to be true or the god will die. Mm-hmm. There, there's this sort of language game that's working at the level. And because the, the mm-hmm. narrator of the book mm-hmm. is, is itself a god, there's this kind of fun language game that's working in every word and every sentence of the whole book, which is really fun. As soon as you sort of figure out what's going on, which happens pretty early, you can kind of like be thinking about that the whole way through, which I loved. I also love the distributed consciousness of a major POV character, which is a thing that Anne Lucky does a lot. I mean, at least she does it in every other book that I've read of hers. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love that. I think it's really creative. It's, it's, it's not, you know, she's not the only person to ever have thought of that, but sure. she does it really well. And I really like, there's a, there's a fresh feeling that I get from uh, trying to think about like how this POV actually works that I'm, reading mm-hmm. in um mm-hmm. which i really really like and and you know as far as the um, so those things i love and as far as the sort of the actual plot i kind of totally know what you mean about the the hamletness and the kind of like um lack of agency almost of the of the like a lot of the like principal characters who mm-hmm. are actually just puppets <laughs> in this like big game but that doesn't really bother me as much i mean i think you've described it well I just happen to like it more, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of your enjoyment, how did this compare to her other books? Did you like it about the? Because this is your first fantasy experience with her. So how did it compare to the Imperial Rats trilogy? Very well. Uh I mean, those are excellent. This I also thought was excellent. I think she just did. It's so smart, too. I mean, like there's I have Mm -hmm. a lot of positive things to say about this book. I really, really, really liked it. Among the ways that it's smart is that um, there's a lot of fantasy there's a lot of like new epic fantasy these days and um this feels really distinct like she's managed to Mm -hmm. create a world Mm -hmm. a combination of world and like character setup that stands out easily in Mm -hmm. a crowded field um so just that level of creativity um is i really appreciate i think it's i think it's awesome and her her sci-fi books are similar in that way Cool. I have some I have some thoughts about that, but I want to hear Whiskey Jenny's review first and then I'll finish us up. Okay. Uh well I will say first of all, overall I really enjoyed it. I um also especially loved the rules about the gods. Mm-hmm. And and like you said, the they 
they die if they say something untrue, but it's even more specifically, they die if they don't have the power to make that thing true. Like it's not yeah. just automatic. It's like, if I can make it happen and make it true, then it's fine. And then we're all good. Um, mm-hmm. So I really like that. And for that reason, I think um, the book is kind of split into two portions almost where we're getting the a present day story of Hamlet and bureaucracy and then the past story of the gods warring, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I was, um, I enjoyed both, but I was way more drawn to the the past story of all the gods Same. and their alliances. I found that so fascinating. Yeah. Every time we had to come back I to agree. like, and now we'll talk about the council some more. It's like, do we, do we have to though? <laughs> Can we go back to that cool like group of mosquitoes that are gods? Like that was awesome. Yeah. Um, also, I think, you know, a real reproach to uh, the Star Wars prequel trilogy that she makes trade <laughs> disputes so fascinating. In the, uh... There are so many things that are a reproach to that, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I shaded them completely unnecessarily, but it, it did occur to me because I really think that the flashback portions are very interesting and yeah. they are basically mm-hmm. about trade disputes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, I think, you know, strength and patience of the hill mm-hmm. is maybe my favorite character in a fantasy novel in a long time. I, I so knew good. that was going to be the case. I kept, <laughs> thinking, I, mean, I, I kept thinking shrimp ship whenever I was reading it and thinking like Matt's, re- Matt's relationship to the Binti shrimp ship. <laughs> absolutely. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just completely like, just as I am in the aquarium, in the tank for the shrimp ship, I am on the hill for, I will die on the hill where, you know, strength, I will die on the strength and patience of the hill, that hill. Like, I mean, I just love I just anyway sorry I'm interrupting you (laughs) no I totally agree we can die together I'm not like at at the end of the book I'm not sure if I was supposed to be rooting so hard still for the rock but I really was I was like great well this seems like it's great for the rock so (laughs) happy ending (laughs) yeah pro rock Rock. Um, and also strength and patience of the hill is an amazing name yep. already <laughs> um i'm you, you were talking about the like the collective voice and i'm so impressed that she pulled for me she pulled off both a difficult second person but also a narrator who is kind of withholding information from you mm. um without it being uh, to me, someone who finds that often annoying. Yes, you um, do. I do. But for somehow in this case, I, I knew that it was happening, but I was just like happy to go along with the ride and hear whatever the rock was happy to tell me. And mm-hmm. it wasn't coy. It wasn't um, like making fun of you for not knowing this information or or doing things like that that bother me. But um, but really just telling this felt like it was telling the story naturally in the way that uh, you you normally would and not withholding things just to withhold them, I right. suppose. There's something interesting in the way that like it can withhold, but it can't just straight up lie. So it's mm-hmm. not a traditional mm-hmm. unreliable narrator mm-hmm. in that way, mm-hmm. which yeah. I liked a lot more, I think for, for really similar. Yeah, reasons that's a great point. Too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's exactly the lying that, that, that you hate as, or at least that I hate that's as true. a reader. Mm-hmm. Like, and so if if early on you are you're given a kind of clear set of rules by which, you know, you're just you're told the rules that it will operate under mm-hmm. so you can kind of relax a little. Which so I, I like. want to I want to have a whole thing about rules. I just want to, mm-hmm. like, talk mm-hmm. about rules later. So. Oh, man, <laughs> I, I was really wrote say that I down in my notes. It's just rules. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, why don't you tell us what you thought about it, Adrian? What was your what's your capsule review? Yeah, whiskey Jenny, are you are you? Do you oh, feel yes. good? Yeah, I Sorry. think that's about it. Team Rock. Okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, I so Team I rock. essentially just like ditto all of that whiskey Jenny. Like I I 
love strength and patience on the hill. I like reading the end. I was like, oh, great. The rock one. It was like, wait, is that the is that? No, I'm OK yes. with that. I yeah, think... that's that's how I'll yeah. <laughs> relate yeah. I think to we this all, ending. We all like the rock winning. So I think that was the intended effect. Yeah. <laughs> right. And um, I also I was um, so I, I, I found the book super fast to read to the point of like trying to slow myself down a little bit and actually like enjoy it more by slowing myself down. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. which for me is always good. Like I like that kind of tension in reading a book when it's both propulsive and I want to like sit with it at the same time. I, um, I agree. I found some sections more compelling than others and would often find myself like if I was reading in a, in a single setting kind of like, I would maybe start with a section that was historical, then go to the present day and kind of like read till I was back in a historical section and then sort of like, you know, like kind of finding myself like, oh, I really want to like begin and end with these historical sections because they're the parts that I liked the most. Um, and they were, I think, in some ways the most, they're just very creative. Um, in terms of comps, I actually, one thing I was thinking a lot of um, as a more recent comp was N.K. Jemisin's Inheritance Trilogy. Um, and I think there's a lot to maybe talk about there. The the way the gods work, the way the gods interact kind of with humanity, uh, some of even the like narrative, like second person narrators and like gods as narrators and that kind of thing um, happened. And so I was definitely thinking about that while I was reading it. It's kind of for me, the, the closest comp. And I think that, you know, that's one that both like is good because I like those books uh, is also maybe like there's certain things that maybe I enjoyed more about the inheritance book and certain things I enjoyed more about this one. Um, but yeah, overall, like very positive. Glad I read it. Funny. I, I finished it and was just like, I want more of this. And yep. I went back to ancillary justice for the second time and started reading it again for the second time. And for the second time, just couldn't find myself getting into it. Really? Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that's, it's really interesting. Something about what this book tickled in me is, is so far in the first, like, you know, 50 pages that I've read of ancillary justice twice now, just like not hitting that same like not scratching that same Man. pitch and I'm not quite sure why yet. And maybe it's just that it's the beginning of a much longer story and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just need to, I don't know. I mean, I really liked the beginning for, for instance of that mm -hmm. book. The beginning was a part that I liked. Um, I mean, I liked a lot of it, but right. so I don't know. Yeah. I'm not disliking it. Just be, there's something about like the, you know, kind of forward motion of Raven tower that I'm not feeling in the, in ancillary justice yet. So I kind of like want to, and I want to, I might try provenance or something and see if a more, self-contained story has some of that i just anything um, that's like a ship or a rock i guess <laughs> I'm, I'm all in for. oh have man read, um, have you read uh Aliette de Bodard's? she has some oh god i can't remember what they're called oh uh oh, the, the, the like jade, the, yeah um no i that's on the list but i haven't well i yeah, believe I I, they have mind chips in that i think all right those are absolutely. the into that. like Chinese Sherlock Holmes in space or um, Vietnamese yes. Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. in space. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't read any of those. Did that just get nominated for like a best novella at the Hugo's? Yes. I want to say, okay. Maybe. I don't know. There's so many awards <laughs> coming out and I can't keep track. So maybe yeah. a resounding yeah, maybe. I <laughs> <laughs> cut some of the awards. Definitely something I wanted. I've been wanting to check out too. Um, yeah. I mean, so uh, I was also, and this is kind of, uh, you, you brought this up in my head because of talking of comps. Um, I don't know how well, this is like an interesting, uh, you know, comparison rather than like something that's actually really close mm -hmm. to the book. But um, 
we've kind of mentioned offhand a few times Hamlet, but uh, you know, I'm sure we'll probably bring this up more. But in addition to like things that were inspirational for this book, uh, she, you know, uh, Anne Lucky mentions in interviews that she has been inspired specifically by N.K. Jemisin a lot, but also by Andre Norton and uh, the uh, Prydain books. Um, oh, sure. Interestingly sure. enough. By Lloyd I don't Alexander. Think I've ever heard of yeah, these. But you're right, by Lloyd Alexander. So that's um, it's just kind of something to think about. I thought that was interesting. I wouldn't have thought of either of those. What but, what are those books? I don't I don't know either. Uh, it's um uh, they're a series of YA fantasy novels, mm. uh, epic fantasy. Um and uh, to be honest, I, you know, I read them when I was a kid and I kind of don't remember the plot <laughs> extremely well, but Yeah, I they liked were it. kind of Yeah, no, they were my sister, my older sister liked them a lot and I liked them less. Um they were kind of Welsh inspired and like that kind of mythology is not really my thing. Um but there's I think 5 of them. There's a lot of quest stuff. They're very heavily influenced by Tolkien. Hmm. It's not. It's not the Westmark. Is that just a separate series? That is a that separate. That's different. That's separate. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. I'm not familiar yeah. with them. And Andre Norton is a. Uh, uh, that's actually the pen name of a female uh, science fiction author. Okay. <clears throat> cool. Yeah. Interesting. I guess uh, you know, as per last episode's discussion, I never really read any fantasy as a kid, so that would be sure. totally <laughs> over my head. <laughs> um, well, I think so. I think one of the reasons she probably brought that up is because um, the the Pride Inn books are um, are thought of, I think, in at, at a high level as being pretty smart and kind of a little bit subversive, while also hewing to a lot of cla- mm. a lot of like sort of twentieth century fantasy cliches. Like, yeah, they're quite tropey, is my recollection. I I probably shouldn't speak on this because I didn't really care for them. Um, so yeah. sorry. Yeah, no. No, ahead. yeah, I, and I also don't remember them extremely well. But I re- I I know that there have been a number of like articles in the last like couple of years of people like looking back on them as adults and being extremely happy and 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 fanning out about them. Um, in part because of their uh the way they both you know use and subvert tropes it's in a sort of smart way. And I think that's something that is definitely going on in this book. But anyway. Oh yeah, for sure. Very cool. Well, yeah. So should we actually talk about this book, like as a fantasy novel and kind of like, you know, I, I I'm curious cause I'm someone who has read a, you know, small, but decent amount of fantasy, especially a lot of the kind of more, um, you know, I guess modern fantasy stuff that's coming out, whether they think the post, like a song of ice and fire and like post that kind of fantasy. Uh, so like Joe Abercrombie, George R. R. Martin, obviously, um, like one of the Malazan books, um, a few, few other kind of like books like that. And it's stuff that I've enjoyed for the most part, but I feel like the stuff of it that I've really liked is often the stuff that isn't like the big kind of like big name fantasy. Like I'm thinking, uh, I guess N.K. Jemisin like now is, but like also her her early books. I think honestly, my favorite N.K. Jemisin book is actually the first of the Dream Blood duology, um, which is just like was this book that I just devoured and couldn't get enough of. Um, I also think a little bit, and I think there's there's some comps in here too of um, Rosemary um, Kirstein's the Sears oh, yeah. Woman. Oh my series. god, I love those. I love those. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I I just uh, again another series of book that I like. I don't uh, even know how out, I found out, the first out, one. Outrider or Outskirter? Out, the Outskirter Outlander, Se- Outskirter, Outskirter, yeah. Outskirter Secret. That's the first one I think. Yeah, yeah. 
I think that's, or is that the, I don't, I never remember what Oh, no, you're right. Uh, I just, the Sears woman. Sears woman? Or, yeah, the Sears yeah. woman is just the first one. Um, yeah. And those, I, a, another series that like I just couldn't put down. <laughs> just like tore through those. Oh my God, I and love those so something much. about those also have this kind of similar feeling of like, you know, part of the fun of the story is figuring out what the rules are. And mm -hmm. I think that's something that mm -hmm. I like a lot in fantasy is often this sense of like, there's some sort of rules, they're kind of hidden. They're not like sciencey rules necessarily. They're not necessarily logical rules, but they're sensical mm -hmm. rules. Like mm -hmm. they're not rational, but there are rules. Mm -hmm. And that's something that um, in this book, I particularly really enjoyed and getting to kind of like tease out what those rules are and how they work. And then getting a narrator who's like working within the constraints of those rules was really fun too. I would say I don't tend to read a lot of, I, I read a fair amount of fantasy, but I don't tend to read a lot of secondary world fantasy unless someone's really kind of mm. pushing it on me, like the mm -hmm. N.K. Jemisin books, which got so much attention. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that I do have a hard time with, um, the world building can often feel a little vague, like yeah. someone's taking for granted that this is like Tolkien until, unless I right. sort of specifically totally depart up. from that. Um, and so to me, the world building in this book, I thought was tremendous and everything felt really, not just the rules for the gods, but the, um, the demarcations of the borders and who had what resources and how trading those resources impacted everyone. That stuff else just felt really distinct and clearly explained. In a, and so for me, like it worked better than a lot of secondary world fantasy does for me because I don't tend to have the patience to be like, Oh yeah, this country has a mountain and this one has mm. this. <laughs> and I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But yeah, so that was, I think it was better for me than a lot of secondary world fantasy in that, in that regard. That's nice. Right. One thing I appreciate, yeah. go ahead. Uh, I was going to say one thing I appreciate too, is uh, I think a lot of the Tolkien esque stuff has this, you know, kind of like the various like fantasy races. And in some ways this is almost more like D and D inspired. I think in a oh, lot sure, of, well, sure, but sure, of that course D and D yeah. is Tolkien inspired. Right. Well it, it, <laughs> is, it is, but I feel like the way the races are, used are often more kind of based on like D&D's kind of rules and different races have different abilities kind of thing going on which I often have issues with sure. storytelling <laughs> perspective uh, and the way that those races you know I think try to get like people a lot of authors will try to map them on and be you know it's the same sort of like a Zootopia problem of like <laughs> oh the carnivores are like kind of like the oppressed class but also they're actually dangerous and it's like what right. what, what yeah. is the message there exactly <laughs> like mm. what, what are you what's what are you really saying underneath that so mm. you know it's one thing that I do appreciate I think in a lot of these kind of books that I pulled up is it's like a smart kind of like well-developed world and one that's not trying to just be a big metaphor or allegory but actually trying to be its own world mm -hmm. yeah whiskey yeah. Jenny what do you think of Tolkien and modern fantasy <laughs> do you is that something that you like or Oh man, it really is. I was just going to say the um, strength and patience reminded me of nothing so much as the Ents from yeah. Lord of the Rings, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> Very much love reading about the Ents. Like he'll 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 sit and ponder questions for weeks at a time, and then sort of eventually realizes that he's care come to care for these puny little things living beneath him. 
Um, and like when That's he starts marching so towards smart. war, I was like, at March, at March. <laughs> oh my God. That is, a, that is a perfect comparison that did not occur to me at all. No, that's yeah. so key. That's such a good comparison. Uh, well, we've just been rereading The Lord of the Rings. We're just coming to the end of a Lord of the Rings uh, nice. reread. So oh, nice. they're, they're very fresh in our minds. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have. It's been great. But as you were saying about uh, using um, uh, the giving different kinds of creatures in your fantasy world different um powers like upon reread the racism is extremely apparent as well in Lord yeah. of the Rings and it's been like oof it's been tough and, and also, and also oh, yeah 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 all kinds of stuff and also the elves are just like we are not team elves the elves are huge jerks, <laughs> the elves are jerks. They're giant jerks. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna come out here and say it. the elves are jerks <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but they're so noble remember, and old, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, and they love to tell you about it too. <laughs> <laughs> oh awesome. yeah, I guess the elves really do have that kind of like really obnoxious noblesse oblige thing <laughs> going on, don't they? But they like barely have noblesse oblige. When they do it, they're like, "Oh, you're welcome. We're really helping you, but we actually should be leaving." And then the next thing you know, they're leaving. They're just right. they have to. Oh. You're well, I feel like that's the way noblesse oblige usually kind of plays itself out, right? <laughs> well, but that's what I'm saying. They like pat themselves on the back for no, no matter what they do, whether they do the noblesse oblige thing or they just peace out. They're like, "Good for us. We're doing right. awesome." Yeah. And everyone's like, "You are doing awesome. Way to go, elves!" Right. So they're yeah. really and, the and centrists of that world, aren't they? And like the the subtext of course is like as you were saying very problematic because they're supposed to not only be you know it's not only that their culture is somehow attractive it's that they literally are more closely related to the divine like actually Mm -hmm. and so eh, don't love that Mm -hmm. (laughs) but anyway i do you guys want to talk a little bit about the rules and now get into that yeah, I do. I, think, I want to talk about think, rules. Uh, yeah, we a, love rules. It's a yes. yummy, <laughs> yummy topic. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, um, this is a, a thing that a lot of fantasy books do, but it's it's there's a strand in particular of of like recent fantasy that kind of um, it goes that that takes that is more conscious of the fact that that's what it's doing. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking in particular of like you know the 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 gigantic you know Sanderson. career of Brandon Sanderson. Um, <laughs> And uh, and his and his imitators, of course. And and I mean, you know, obviously he's far from the first person to do this. But I think, you know, I think that there have been a lot of and I've even, you know, even um, even somebody like N.K. Jemisin, I think, is a lot more conscious of doing this. And, you know, I've listened to interviews of her where she talks about her world building workshops that she runs and her process for creating fantasy worlds um, mm-hmm. in the context of a workshop and, and how she t- teaches about that and stuff. And. I think that, you know, actually somebody else who does this a lot is Octavia Butler, who we haven't mentioned. She is like a a progenitor almost of the modern. She's like an unsung progenitor of this modern trend in fantasy to to have these sort of specific rules, some of which are mysterious. I mean, she has this whole thing where people are her her characters are like discovering the rules that they operate under in her stories, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. But. And and she also is like and Jemison, somebody who's taught a lot of workshops and been very influential in, in kind of spreading her methods, and so there's this 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 more more recent trend towards being really conscious about creating rule sets and being very deliberate about um, setting up these games for readers almost. And mm-hmm. uh, one thing that I like about this book is that it doesn't it doesn't take it it, it doesn't. Um, 
the kind of game that it's setting up, you know, there's different kinds of of rule games you could set up with with readers if you'll if you'll go along with me on this metaphor. Like, you know, if you think about different kinds of board games, you know, some of them have like a lot of rules mm-hmm. and you got to like read this giant rule book and keep referring to it and and you know there's like all these different terms and you have to I'm playing Gloomhaven right now and like yeah. oh, talk about <laughs> rules Jesus I, I actually love Gloomhaven it's amazing but um, you would <laughs> I know but then there's also board games like you know that have very few rules and mm-hmm. all of the kind of fun and like you know among the different kinds of board games with more or fewer rules, you could also have more or less complexity. And, you know, a game with very few rules can be very complicated, like Go, or it can be mm-hmm. very simple, like Tic-Tac-Toe. And so there's the kind of these two axes operating here. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then with, 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 uh, with this book, I feel like with Raven Tower, you know, she's created a, a very simple set of rules. And she's man- and, 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 and she's allowed that simple set to be powerful enough to to be kind of complicated but like not too complicated no it's not like, at all it's really amazing how well balanced it is i think in that sense well, one of the really interesting things about the rules too is they work not just inside the story but also on the narrative itself like going mm-hmm. back oh to God, the yeah. the board game metaphor it's like a lot of uh, something like gloomhaven or even like D, which it's based on it's like you have the story elements then you have the rules which are about how to do the specific mechanical things then you have a whole other kind of role-playing game often called story games or story larps or whatever have you um and i, I have a bunch of friends who write these where they're often much simpler the rules are like much smaller and shorter but the rules are how do you tell the story together not how do you do the mechanical actions within the world and there's definitely an element of that in this book where like the rules both exist within the world but also because a god within the world is telling you the story the rules also determine the way in which it can tell the story uh which i enjoyed a lot like i really liked that it's kind of playing on these two different levels and i like it i think that she does a good job of having the god having the strength and patience of the hill perpetually remind you of the rule and show it mm-hmm. operating so that it's always kind of top oh, yeah, in, great your, point. in your brain. And I think she does that so uh, organically. It never, fe- it, mm-hmm. to me, it never felt like this is exposition. Remember the rule, but it does have the impact of making sure that you always remember the rule, which becomes very key at the end of the book. So, right. Ugh. I love it so much. <laughs> Jenny, what, what did you think of the rules? Yeah, no, I love them. I uh, am impressed that I only ended up with, uh, and this is a testament to how successful the rules were. I ended up ended up with one question of like, wait, ha, ha, uh, so that thing with that thing, what was the thing with the thing again? Uh, and if what, I may, I, 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 I may, I will take my opportunity now to ask my question. So yeah, yeah, okay. and then yeah, I have a follow it. up to your question. So go ahead. Okay. So uh, the uh, strength and patience. I, I want to call it Strength and Fortitude now for some reason. Strength and Patience of the Hill. It has a bunch of names. I think Fortitude is one of its names. Oh, does it? Okay. Oh. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've also in my head was just calling it The Rock and then giggling about <laughs> imagining like Dwayne Johnson telling me the story every time. You do so. also love that, The Rock. So. That's so funny. I love that. I just, so uh, I just all of a sudden kick because it's like one big, really solid stone. And I'm imagining it's just a big, like, version of The Rock's head. Yeah. Just like, you know, just like blown up to being like, you know, 40 feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> like Stonehenge, but The Rock. But um, The Rock, yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, continue. No, no. So The Rock has said that he will fulfill the request of anyone who causes him to be turned. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we find out at the end that 
the Raven has been requesting of him to do all these things that for the town that everyone thinks the Raven himself is doing, but the Raven has died. But the rock only stops doing those things once he stops turning. So is it that the requests still apply even if the requester has died? Well, I think, I think I could be wrong, but I think the Raven isn't actually dead for one thing. Oh. Oh. I think, I think the Raven's just like real weak. And oh. lost its body. And, and like about to be dead, right? I think. Oh, I thought the raven was straight up dead. Oh, I thought the raven was dead, too. I thought the raven was dead, too. Oh. I thought the raven right. was like dying. <laughs> Controversy. <laughs> I, thought the raven, I thought the raven was like long dead, was oh, my no. understanding. No, the, the, the forest is long dead. Well, we don't know but about the forest. Right. But I think the presumption is the forest is probably dead. But the raven, I thought, they, they talk a lot about like the plan to kill the raven. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but I thought that that was kind of like still in operation. So to well, speak. I think there's the thing of like the humans have this plan to kill the raven. But right. little do they know that the God that they've been praying to this whole time uh-huh. and has been doing all this stuff is not actually the raven anymore. It yeah. is strength and patience of the hill yeah. who's been turning. Well, so what's interesting is they never it never says that the raven is dead. Just as it never says that the, the forest, forest is, dead. is dead, yeah, it's very and so. There's about some ambiguity that. by by the nature of that right. it's dangerous to say that a god is dead because then mm. it, it might kill you mm-hmm. to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but, at but, what it does, point, but it does say that the raven spoke anyone who fought against right. him dead, and we know that that's not true because the strength and patience right. of the hill is still, still alive, alive. And the myriad is still alive, and myriad is still alive. Right. The myriad, like, yeah. they're reunited. Myriad, so happy myriad about also, that. Myriad is so cool. Yeah, Myriad is, Myriad is a goddess who's a just a swarm of mosquitoes. She's incredible. Right, yeah. but also a meteorite. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just to make it even cooler, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I absolutely love... I love... Uh, the, there's so many things about this book I love that I've said, I've said that already, but I love that the gods are meteors and they land... Or at least some of them. Some of them, and they, right. and they land right. on the planet in ancient times. And some of the other ones don't even know. They're like, strength and patience of the hill kind of just like slowly gains consciousness sitting on the bottom of the ocean. Right. Like, where did they come from? What are they? <laughs> That's right. so weird. Right. Right. I love, oh, I love I like to, it likes, it gets eventually just kind of gets bored of the ocean and so like builds up mountains around itself mm-hmm. without even realizing that's what it's doing. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's the kind of thing I, I also would do. loved all those the like small gods that had their very specific specialty. Like I oh. loved the. I mean, he ended up not being a small god, but the one who like just made knives. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so great. That's so great. Uh, I love it. Uh, I'm so into this. So okay. So um, so I guess um. Yeah, to answer, to answer of... the question, there is there is ambiguity about okay. exactly what's going on. And yeah. that's yeah. like getting back to the rules. Actually, that's something I enjoyed because one of the things that like for, I've tried to read several Brandon Sanderson novels, I've never been able to get my way through. One. And one thing that I have a hard so... time with is how logical the magic rules are, how it's very much like if X, then Y. It almost feels like a programming language in some way. And for me, like when I read fantasy that the rules are too logical or too knowable at a certain point, I'm almost like, and I think this goes back to some stuff that I was talking about as Kim. I'm like, well, why am I not just reading like science fiction at this point and <laughs> actually like reading something that maybe has says more about the kind of themes that I enjoy as well. Um, so I think there was something really interesting about the fact that there are like stated strong rules 
yeah. and also still ambiguity and also still like room for interpretation. That's what I liked. I was going to say, I really liked that the rules essentially had to do with language because then although mm-hmm. the rules are quite simple, it's also pretty easy to circumvent them if you can kind of think about things in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it rem- it's, that's the kind of fantasy rule that I enjoy. Like we've <laughs> whiskey Jenny knows that I really like uh, creepy fairies. And mm. one of the reasons <laughs> is uh, like creepy fairy rules often involve language and bargains. Oh, yeah. And if you say this, Diana Wynne Jones does this a lot too. And she's yeah. one of my favorite authors. Um, but I was also thinking of um, Naomi Novik's most recent book, Spinning oh. Silver. Oh. Yeah. I still haven't read that one. I really it's, liked Uprooted. It's really good. And one thing that's really cool about it is that the, um, the the creepy fairy um commands the protagonist to turn a uh, straw into gold and she does it by by doing trades so she she's able to mm. get gold by doing trade she's a very savvy merchant um but when she does it three times then she actually gains the like magical power to turn things into gold um which was a very mm. creepy fairies kind of mm-hmm. uh situation yeah. and that, that also makes me think of uh uh, Susanna Clark's uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Yes. Which has creepy fairies and it does. bargaining. And bargains. And yeah. And that's yep. the kind of rule that I really like, which is, I think, probably why this worked so well for me, because it is simple, but it has a lot of room to maneuver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other nice thing about those kind of bargains and language games is that, you know, everybody who's reading the book knows the language. And right. So they can play too. And <laughs> the rules. And they can play yeah. too. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's yeah. I, I really like that. Um, did anybody have any issues with the rules being too vague or being kind of like? Um, <clears throat> I think. Well, I think the rule itself is not ambiguous, so I was satisfied. And I think mm. the sort of interpretation of the events at the end is more what's up for mm. um, discussion. So, so for that reason, um, I found it pretty satisfying. And I was going to ask, is this? I can't remember if we talked this or, about this already or not, but is this a one-off or is this at the beginning of a series? Because I would love so many more books about strength and patience. I'm sorry. It's a one-off. I'm pretty no! sure. Yeah. I, I think it is. Yeah. yeah but right. I don't think she has shut the door to writing more in this world. I think just this book is, is its own. And honestly, it's pretty self-contained in terms of being yeah. Hamlet. Yeah. Right. right. So I also wanted to talk about that. Does anybody else have more rule stuff they want to talk about? No, sorry. I was just trying to make us talk about Hamlet because I'm super excited to talk about Hamlet. Oh my God. Oh my God. Let's, let's talk about Hamlet. <laughs> Do it. I hate Hamlet. Hamlet is the worst. <laughs> oh, man. All of the wrong white men that designed gate. great books curricula 80 years ago are like shivering in their graves. I know. Well, Whiskey Jenny and I were talking about Hamlet uh, before this podcast, and Whiskey mm-hmm. Jenny was burning it so viciously. Ooh. Um, but I, what yeah. we discovered is we're really both Macbeth ladies. Yeah, that's where it's at. <laughs> and Othello. So, I don't want to. I love Othello as well. <laughs> oh, man. That's so it's interesting. It's funny. I never actually enjoyed his dramas very much. So I've mostly read the comedies. Not um, even I Macbeth? Mean, no, it's in fact. Very Mac- suspenseful. I had, I had like one of the. Because I read Macbeth in high school and I had like. It was for my worst class that I took in high Aww. school. And so it just like very, very bad associations with Macbeth. Um, sure. No, I'm a, I'm more of a like, you know, Romeo and Juliet, Midsummer Night's Dream, even Taming of the Shrew to a degree. Like, sure. like <laughs> I, I do enjoy the, the more, 
Like Shakespeare's really funny when he's trying to be funny. Yeah, oh, yes. he is. Comedy yeah, to do about nothing is straight comedy up gold. It's like right. door slamming farce. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> right. Really, really good. Uh, I love. Um, it. So I, w- I will take yeah. the position to defend Hamlet over Macbeth <laughs> because that I do. I, I like Hamlet more than Macbeth. Uh, you know, oh, you're or, so wrong. Yeah, it's, it's 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 legit. It's legit. I all right. So why don't you make your make your pitch, both of you. My Auntie Hamlet. Well, Whiskey Jenny, why don't you go first? I feel like I've talked a lot. (laughs) Um, I mean, my pitch is pretty simple. Like, I think he's kind of an asshole. And he... (laughs) He totally um, is. First of all, like, and this sort of applies to this book as well. Uh, I have a hard time getting behind someone who's pissed that they're, like, or not constitutional, their, like, hereditary monarchy rights have been taken away. Like, it's hard to root for that guy because it's like, well, why do you deserve it over your uncle? He doesn't deserve it either. None of you deserve it. Everyone Mm. should be a democracy. But anyway, um, (laughs) uh, the, um, yeah, he's just, he's just an asshole. He, like, his plan to for revenge is the worst plan ever he and then he then he doesn't even do the plan he just like wanders yep. around for a while flarging about asking questions and but then his grand plan is like a i'm gonna pretend that i'm crazy and be mean to ophelia and b i'm gonna put on a play and then his <laughs> uncle falls for the play and he's like oh no a play and it's like well this is like it's a bad plan that works and it annoys me that the plan works also and uh yeah but mostly it's just that he's an asshole and i don't like him <laughs> Which I think, I think, in fact, um, although I think the Hamletiness of this book was a mark against it for me, um, I do think Anne Leckie does a good job of addressing that. And Whiskey Jenny, you mentioned this before the podcast because, I mean, the book talks about that the Hamlet character, Mawat, is kind of an asshole and is behaving like an asshole. Oh, yeah. Um, but also at the end of the book, uh, he kind of gets his. <laughs> he sure well, does. Yeah. The Rock wins. The Rock wins. Yeah. yeah. Who, is, who I was rooting for anyway? Rock and yeah. Myriad. Yeah. Um, That's a great buddy comedy. I absolutely love the buddy comedy of like a cloud of mosquitoes and a rock. It is a good buddy. So Dwayne Johnson would obviously play the rock. Who would play Myriad? A tough, tough question. (sighs) Tough question. I'm going to have to think about that some more. I want to say someone like very un the rock, like Isla Fisher, like someone who's the literal opposite of the rock. Interesting. Literal opposite of the rock. Huh. She seems like flitty. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That could work. That yeah. Could work. Uh, so yeah, for a, me, I don't have an idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna think about it some more. Yeah, okay. we'll think about it more. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't disagree at all. I mean, Hamlet mm-hmm. is clearly an asshole, but like, <laughs> so is Macbeth. I mean, he, what a douche. But at <laughs> like, least he's doing stuff, man. Like at least he and Lady <laughs> Macbeth are doing stuff. What's maddening to me about Hamlet is Hamlet does nothing, and nobody does anything. Everyone is just. Like they're all around Denmark doing nothing. And even in this book where the Horatio character uh, does take actions, the actions he takes are so small by comparison with the stakes. I was just, Mm -hmm. it was very, that that kind of contributes to my feeling of the book felt a little static, even as it was moving along pretty quickly because Mm -hmm. no one does anything in Hamlet. So (laughs) I know I, I think um, I constitutionally, I am in favor of stories where nothing happens. And I think, Oof, you know, me. I realized oh. this a, a while ago, but um, I, I realized it again every time I'm in a conversation like this. I guess <laughs> I, I I fundamentally don't see nothing happening as a problem and kind of, I don't know, it can be relaxing or it can be really interesting, too, because I really love it's almost like it's the story version of sitting um, for an entire morning with an endless cup of tea and like some, you know, like 
the NYRB when it was good, like or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I you know and just and just like and just and just sitting and enjoying enjoying the the birds are chirping and you're kind of reading this article maybe, but it doesn't really matter, you know. And oh, see, no, I just, that I'm... feeling is so relaxing and and also pleasant. And sometimes you know you do engage, you you like dig into the article, and maybe there's an interesting thing going on in front of you. But like it's also just like it's it's about immersion rather than propulsion. Oh yeah, no, I'm definitely about I'm definitely about propulsion. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I mean, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say I'm very pro plot, but I again, I do want to say like and like he did do a good job with this plot. It's just that the underlying stuff was was kind of yeah. a problem for me. Still, I do think there's, yeah, there's two sort of two separate things here. One is Hamlet and the other is Anne Lucky doing riffing on Hamlet. And I think she right. she's very aware of this issue you're talking about. Mawat is not like a uncomplicated hero type. He's yeah, no, definitely. kind of an yeah. asshole right. and yeah. other people talk about him being an asshole and you know, it's they, they even talk about the the problem. Iolo, the sort of Horatio character, even talks about the issue of his kind of loyalty to Mawat. And like, you know, because a lot of the things that happen in that part of the narrative are Iolo sort of reacting to events um, mm-hmm. based on Iolo's like great loyalty to Mawat. And, you know, Iolo recognizes that it's kind of, you know, maybe a little weird, maybe a little problematic that he's so loyal to Mawat. And even that, it's even dealt with on that level. But, you know, I mean, ultimately, I guess the thing from that, the the modern part of the narrative's, you know, great issue from a Hamlet-hating perspective is that it, it, it does the same stuff. Even though it treats the characters more uh, thoughtfully, it mm-hmm. does the same stuff or rather doesn't do the same stuff that, that Hamlet does. Yeah, exactly. Down with Hamlet. <laughs> no. Well, so the other thing that I like about Hamlet is that... Um, like there are a lot of ways to depict how real people would react to circumstances. And I think dithering is one of them. And I, you know, I, I'm actually interested in if smart people nonetheless sort of dither. It's, it's like it, to me, it's like, okay, there's, uh, there's the whole antihero thing. I don't think of Hamlet as an antihero in the model of, in the mold of like a, you know, modern prestige TV antihero. I don't think of him that way. He clearly is a douche and also like the protagonist. So in some sense he's similar, but I think of him more like a poet or something like like instead of instead of, you know, doing bad things, he just kind of muddles and tries to think about his circumstance as his circumstance falls apart around him, which is more interesting than like actively doing bad things like Walter White or something. Sure. I mean, well, sure. And I'm not I'm not. You know, I, I have never been a big fan of the whole sort of trend of TV antiheroes and the Walter White and the Don Draper guys. However, I will say that the. I think the central thing for me is not whether a person is likable or not likable. It's whether they're competent or not competent. And mm, I find Hamlet's yeah. incompetence extremely difficult to bear. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, he's very incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> and this, I mean, not to whatever, but uh, not to be predictable, but I mean, this is why I like TV shows like Black Sails, where everyone is massively competent. Um, and even when they make mistakes, they're still always kind of it's clear what they want. And, and it's clear that what they're doing in pursuit of what they want is, even if it doesn't work, is not a bad idea. It's just, you know, circumstances will tell against them or won't tell against them. But yeah. it just, I don't know. To me, that's what felt static about this book and also Hamlet. Um, it's that I, I don't really know what Hamlet wants because he doesn't know what he wants. Yeah. And mm-hmm. no one does. He's, he's completely incompetent about getting it. Yeah. 
It is interesting as you guys are talking and I'm sitting here thinking about it that like I feel like in my head I have the like a lot of memory of the historical godly plot stuff. Whereas, you know, I finished the book maybe a week ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, and I've already kind of lost a lot of the ELO, Maquat, like, you know, modern, modern kind of in quotes, right. uh, you know, Renaissance Day plot of, of the like political intrigue where it doesn't touch the gods. Like all this stuff where it touches the gods, I still kind of have like, oh yeah, this has happened and the, you know, ravens are doing this and you know, all that stuff. Whereas the rest of it, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, that's right. There were like twins at one point and like they all... <laughs> Rosencrantz like, and Guildenstern, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> um, uh, while I was reading it, I didn't notice a difference in quality, right? Like I noticed like, oh, I kind of enjoy this stuff more than that, but that felt very much like the types of stories that I enjoy. Looking back on actually like what's in my head or not, I almost wonder like, is there maybe a difference in quality? Like, is there a feeling that like actually like this was just like a less interesting story to try to tell in mm. this way that like, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Right. Like I kind of I kind of want to dig into a little bit of like what was successful or not, not objectively, but but like, yeah, you know, does that I question think... make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Whiskey Johnny. Oh, I was gonna say, I think, I think, I think there is a difference um, from a plot perspective, and I'm specifically thinking of a time where Eolo and like the town, I don't know, Eolo starts managing the clean water resources for the town and like sending out <laughs> tiny street yeah. urchins as messengers, yep. and I was like, yeah. this is this is cool, and I'm like enjoying the tiny street urchins and the town banding together, but what are we doing here? <laughs> what is, I don't understand why I'm here. It's fine, but why am right. I here? And I think right. there was a lot more of that in that present day um, story than the past story. Yeah, That's the plot did feel a little meandering. That's funny. I actually kind of did enjoy that one thing, partially because... So I like when Hurricane Sandy happened here in New York City, I, I was living in the city and I did a decent amount of like or like a small amount of volunteer work, um, mostly through occupied Sandy at the time. And one of the really interesting things was the ways in which just like, you know, like this idea of like, oh, yeah, all the you know, like you tell the street urchins that they're in charge of a thing and they will just take charge of it. And like all of a sudden they're going up to the, you know, guards and being like, what the fuck? Why are you not helping <laughs> in the right way? And that was very much my experience, like on the ground in the Rockaways. Um, and, you know, I mean, even at one point, like. You know, I was ordered to go do something and tell someone something and I go tell them and they're like, oh, you know what's going on? Good. You're in charge of 40 people now. It was sure, like, oh, yeah. OK. And they're all doctors and you're organizing <laughs> the doctors now. It's like, OK, I guess I'm organizing the doctors now. Um, and I did. And it was this kind of interesting moment of like, oh, yeah, that kind of weird sense of like when not, when there's no one in charge, when no one knows who's in charge. It's like those social structures can flip really quickly. What felt very true to life. That said, the point of like, wait, why are we doing this here? Yeah. We, like, was <laughs> true. Yeah. Oh. And I think yeah, those I mean, are all again, interesting. I... Oh, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. I, I think, I mean, I think those are all interesting points. And I think also the the fact that they were so close to the precipice and they didn't realize how much they were relying on 
mm-hmm. um, you know, clean water and all those basic things, relying on the God for that and not themselves is also a really interesting idea, but it was never explored. It was sort of, there was this one little blip about um, street urchins. And then we went back to um, yeah. the, the twins, I guess. I don't know. The monarchy. Uh, yeah. So, it, so yeah. I, I would love to explore those ideas more, but they just didn't get explored. Yeah. yeah that's, yep. that's kind of what I was going to say. I'm, I'm always very interested in disaster response um, in, in fantasy novels. And, you know, I, that's something that I enjoy a lot. I won't get on that tangent. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> or we can go on that tangent, believe me. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you right now. I think that it's just terrible that in the movie Frozen, the only person <laughs> who's doing any kind of organized disaster response later turns out to be the villain. It's like, oh, he was really bad. It's like, you know what? Were you collecting blankets for people? Were you organizing people to make sure that they had food and drink? No, this guy was. Oh, but he's the yeah. villain now. Oh, so mad about it. <laughs> That does um, suck. I'm going to have to watch it again and think about that. Yeah, you should. Because I, I was I so will. in on his character when I he was doing will. the disaster response. I definitely will. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so, and and also I would say that that uh, logistical element is what I liked more about the God storyline. And I would have yeah. liked to see more of that in the Hamlet mm. storyline. Yeah. Um, so. it's, it's, it's interesting to hear all this stuff. I, I really liked the Hamlet storyline in large part because... Well, for for a couple reasons. Um, one is that I, you know I really liked thinking about Hamlet the whole time I was going through it because I I had this like I forget how I even knew this. I typically like don't know this sort of thing when I start a book, but like I had heard that there's a Hamlet connection, and so yeah, I, was I, had not, I did not even think of it. Yeah. I read about it afterwards, yeah. and I was like, oh yeah. yeah Somebody probably really must Jenny, have you on the podcast said Hamlet, and I was like, oh okay. Yeah. But I read it in a review yeah. beforehand. So oh, it yeah, goes yeah, around. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I, I loved just as I was going through it, thinking like, oh, who's this person? Oh, what's this what's this spin on Hamlet here? Or like, oh, how is this different from my expectations? How is this subverting the Hamlet story here? Or like, oh, where how should I think about the play within a play in the context of of this story within a story uh, by a god? Or like there were so, so many things to think about that really related to Hamlet as I was going through the Hamlet part that I mean it was almost like a totally separate book except it, it had a very strong connection to the to the ancient rock sure part of the story too and as far mm-hmm. as the um the ending and the kind of the kind of what's going on with this um disaster response stuff i mean when i when i read that i think my response to it was just like oh this is so cool this is actually like showing part of what it means for the highest rungs of society to be insane and falling apart like like metaphorically speaking if the highest rung if like if the government is falling apart as indeed it was at that point you know like bad things are going to happen to normal people who don't deserve it it's just going to happen and you know it's kind of i think it's interesting you you wanted more of that i I guess i do too to be honest Um, but i hadn't thought about it at the time because to me at the time it was almost like we're going to give you one scene to show you that this is a big deal and then we're going to go back to the, you know, that kind of yeah. a thing. I think but like I would like part more. of part of what it is for me is that, and this is often a feeling I have with fantasy is, um, okay, so taking a step back, right? Like a lot of fantasy is about sort of like politics and the way societies work on kind of like a large power structure level. Um, and 
there's different ways of writing those stories. Some of them are very focused on like a small cast of characters as leaders. And some of them are more focused on like, what's the just like method by which kind of everyone in the society, like instantiates maybe what those leaders think, what they think, the politics of it on a more like ground level way. And I am personally much more interested in those latter kind of stories it's it's like for all of a song of ice and fire's problems it's one of the things i really really enjoyed reading those books is they are so much about how does every single person from like the smallest to the largest you know kind of like actually interact with their own and how do their own you know personal ideologies motivations just like whether they're sick or not at the time like how does all that kind of personal stuff like build up into a society i think like you know this is the kind of thing of like the wire does so well as a tv show is it's you know it's sort of like the specifics of how does this how do individual human level interactions turn into society um and there are i think like this book when it was doing the God stuff was able to do that for gods and just totally abstract humans kind of away from that. Like humans exist as like humanity as opposed to like individuals. And so the God particular stuff made a lot of sense. It was like the individual gods and their individual relationships with each other kind of like turning into this like broader weaving, you know, tapestry of power structures, etc. Whereas the, humanity stuff felt a little bit more like here's a small cast of characters of the like leadership doing their things and that's the story we're telling and so when you pop down a few times into like well what does it mean to have like a good battlefield leader versus a bad battlefield leader what happens when like you have two battlefield leaders and one's good and one's bad and they're Mm -hmm. like you know one's not following orders and then like you know lying about the reasons they did and did not like that stuff is kind of interesting how does the specifics of disaster response work like that stuff was all pretty interesting to me whereas the like oh there's this whole council of like you know there there's essentially a parliament and we meet one character from them and like all of parliament kind of exists as just like parliament as opposed to like a bunch of people with different motivations and what are their motivations and who are they like that's the stuff that often kind of frustrates me in fantasy when it sort of is like well these people think these things and these people think these things. And really yeah. it's all about the leaders of those groups as opposed to like, well, what's the, what are the people in the groups doing? What are the like intragroup politics? Cause that's what I really like to read about. Well, it's it's uh, interesting that because, um, you know, how is the, it makes me wonder like what is different about the rock section versus Hamlet section? Because rock section, like it's almost like even fewer real characters are presented to you. You know, you really get <laughs> I, the one. I have a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. I found the second person narration a little distancing. Mm. And I mm. think I think that, I don't know if that was the only thing that was influencing. Again, the Hamlet story is not good for me to start with. So maybe that was mm. the primary thing. But I did find the second person narration distancing in a way that I didn't in um, the Broken Earth uh, trilogy. Mm-hmm. It made it kind of hard to know Iolo. Um, and... I, I felt like I just got a much better sense of who the strength and patience of the hill and the myriad were, um, because that those sections were being narrated in first person. Um, whereas I had a much harder time feeling that the characters in the ELO sections were complete people who I like knew and understood. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. so interesting. There were a lot of cases where the strength and patience of the hill 
would like guess about what Yolo was feeling, but then like hesitate, but like not be willing to guess too much. Yeah, yeah. You know, and kind of purposefully kind of take a step back and and like choose to not give you the extra detail about what's going on internally in this character. Mm-hmm. And that's so interesting because when I read that, I thought a lot about the ancillary books because there's a lot of POV in the ancillary books where you are a ship and the ship is like thinking about its crew, but it doesn't yeah. actually have access to their minds. It's just like thinking about them. And mm-hmm. it's a very similar dynamic going on here. And I actually, for whatever reason, I find it, I found it really interesting because to me it was, it was, it was a question of, I wasn't wondering so much like who Eolo is. Well, I, I was wondering who Eolo is, but I was, I was wondering who Eolo is from strength and patience's perspective, because I mean, really, like, I guess I felt the whole time, like, strength and patience is the protagonist here. Right. I want to know where it is and what and how it got there and how what its connection to YOLO is, because, like, it starts out talking about YOLO. And I don't know why, you know, I spent a lot of the time sort of wondering. I was I, I felt like, you know, that that question was 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 driving my interest a lot. Um, uh-huh. But I can, you know, I can also really, I can see what you mean. Like, you're you're just not given very much. And and for me, it was enough to wonder about the relationship between the you the um the second person and the first. Sure. But, but yeah. Yeah, it just mm-hmm. it felt like there was some some stuff missing, not just about Iolo as a character, but about his relationships to the other characters. Like, I it was harder for me to know watching him from outside. It was harder for me to know what he was you know yeah. kind of thinking and feeling about all these different things so what do you think until the end i would say like the the climactic scene is is superb i mean it is one of the best little set pieces that i've read in a while um and it was it was a little frustrating too because i was like man like this is how good it could have been all along in the in the <laughs> hamlet sections so oh man that's interesting so what do you think broken earth does better with the second person narration because i that, th- that in particular is an interesting comparison because i know that Anne lucky was specifically inspired by the use of the second person in that book. Right. Um, and, and I don't, gosh, I don't know. I just, I think I would have to go back and reread the second person sections in the Broken Earth trilogy to try and pinpoint what it was. Um, I mean, in part, it might just be that I love N.K. Jemisin's <laughs> writing and I have, you know, I, I have since I, I read a preview of the hundred thousand kingdoms before it was published. And I was like, who is this? <laughs> um, so it could just be that I really, I'm not sure. Um, it's not that unlike he's a bad writer at all. Just NK Jemison is a very voicey writer and it that really mm-hmm. works for me. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's, mm. what's different. I, I can say based on my memories of them. Yeah. There's a, there's a thing that N.K. Jemison does in the second person where like what she's really trying to get you to do is like enter the mindset and like feel like like, like there's I, I, I guess empathy is the right word. But there, like there's this element of like you're going to feel what her motivations are. You're going to feel what her like internal life looks like in this situation. Yeah. You get more access, I think, to her internal right. life. Yeah. That's a great point. Right. Whereas what, you know, strength and patience on the hill is largely doing in the second person is telling you what it looks like what you look like from the outside yeah that's right like he's he's telling you the things you're doing but he's actually very explicitly not telling you how you feel because he doesn't fully know so he can't right like he's playing the language game in a way that he like can't actually or it whatever can't say those things and so 
there there seems to be some element of that where like you know I remember the first time I read The Broken Earth, just having this moment of like N.K. Jemisin is telling me, a like young white dude in my like late 20s, early 30s, at that point, I forget exactly. But, you know, like telling me like, like describing my body to me and the way it feels to live in that body as if I'm like a, you know, 45 year old black woman who has like had kids and like had these experiences. And it, and it was this very like, I, I, I say pulled me out, not pulled me out of the experience of the book, but actually pulled me out of the experience of my own body in a really interesting way that this book never does. And it's fine. Like, you know, not all book. Yeah, that's not its endeavor. Sure. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But right, there right. is something like, like comparing those two second persons. I feel like there's actually different goals with the second person in each book. Yeah. yeah that's a great point. I, I definitely think there's a kind of almost like, distant cerebral quality to Anlucky's yes. writing, mm-hmm. which, you know, which I enjoy largely. Yeah. I, I, that, that, that does it for me and it won't for everybody. It's just, it's, it's interesting to think about it because my first experience with, with her writing in a sci-fi setting, it almost felt, it was like a, it's a very natural thing. I think in a lot of cases to write about like machines from a cerebral sure. point of view. And, and a lot of people, right. I, I definitely thought about this a lot. And when I thought about those books, I thought that there was a lot of intentionality behind that kind of distancing of the voice, mm-hmm. exactly because it's a it's a it's a not a human. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some part of that going on here too, where you know the the narrator isn't human, and she I think there there's some intentional creating of that distance going on as mm-hmm. a means of making this seem less familiar and more weird um but it's a it's a tricky thing of course because um if it makes it seem you know impossible to empathize with then it's like okay well <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i i think you're i think you're right in that um uh, i think there's also very specifically a lot of like language things in the rock's voice that are happening and he's use, using sort of like this very formal grammar and he sounds he just he doesn't talk like you and I do um and I I think in the second person I never felt like the rock was talking to me I was always reminded that the rock is telling this story to Iolo was was how Mm -hmm. I was reading it so I I don't think I was supposed to be doing a sort of self-insert thing sure Um, yeah but then but then you're right you do end up not really getting to know Iolo but on the other hand I think what it gave to me was that I always felt like the rock was ever present no matter what Um, even when, even in the current day story, like he's always there and he's always watching. Um, and you're never allowed to forget that. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. That's a great point. I I was kind of thinking about what the second person took away from my reading experience and I didn't really think about what it added, but you're, you're so right. That's a really great point. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I like it too. Um, yeah. One interesting thing about that is as you go through the Hamlet story and realize, like, you start off with kind of like, oh, is it some like minor do- god? And then you're like, oh, no, it's this kind of more major god, but is weakened and a prisoner somehow. And then realize, like, oh, no, it's actually running the whole show. And you kind of like, yeah. like, its power level doesn't actually ramp up, just your understanding of it ramps yeah. up in a really interesting way. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then you get to the end and you wonder, like, oh, did it just literally cause all of this to happen exactly as it said by saying it? That right. way. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and that I mean, 
like again, I I love an unreliable. It sounds like I am the one amongst us who loves unreliable narrators the very most. Um, at baseline, just from what y'all yeah, said. Maybe I don't know. I like them. Oh, okay, I like right. them. Oh god, I love them. They're like my favorite. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have certain problems with the way they are sometimes handled. Yeah, particularly sure. you can do it badly. I don't. I don't like when a first person narrator lies to me explicitly and then the book makes fun of me for not oh yeah that's stupid no sure yeah yeah. i mean i don't love it's just something that draws me to a book pretty significantly i really i really love it but so so totally what the thing that you're describing adrian the ramping up of your awareness of what the god is capable of was so satisfying Mm -hmm. especially when you get to the very end and i mean the the last line of the book is like really impactful and such a good last line. So, and that realization was one of my favorite, probably my favorite thing about the book, actually realizing that the strength and patience of the hill was running things all along. I mean, that was, mm-hmm. that was great. Ugh. And isn't there some Team element I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I remember something to do with like the very kind of first chapter of the book is, is strength and patience narrating it in the second person, but it's actually mostly in the past tense. It's kind of like the story of you arriving or of Iolo, whatever, arriving in this town. And then it's mostly in present tense through the rest of the book. And then the final chapter is actually future tense. And it's saying like, this is what's going to happen now. And that also yeah. feels like the strength ramp up of like, yeah. it feels confident kind of saying oh, what yeah. actually happened that it observed. And yeah. then it feels more and more confident, just like saying stuff as it's happening and narrating the story with you. And then at the very end, it's like, it's got its power back and it could just be like, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have to worry about it yep. anymore. I'll just tell you. I, so I, yeah. I spent a lot of the book thinking, wondering why it began when it began. And that was a really fun thing for me question. to think about too, because you know, once you see, once it gets to the part where strength of patience is in the the uh, northern city, um, and it's part of the defense of that city against the Raven, um, mm-hmm. you, you see strength and patience for the first time, like extending its awareness into more rocks. And then at that point, I was like, oh, okay, that's why it could see Iolo when it saw him. It was. Because yep. at first I was thinking like, oh, you know, it's because he was in the forest and the forest god was like protecting him. There's some other thing going on there. But then it's like, oh, no, um, strength and patience is this is the whole city and right. it, it can see what the city sees. Um, mm-hmm. And that was so cool. And then just like, you know, so this sort of gradually kind of figuring out what strength and patience was doing in the Hamlet story was really, mm-hmm. really awesome because it's one of the coolest ways where that and like he subverts Hamlet is by the addition of the strength and patience character to it. Cause right. like in Hamlet, it's this, like it's supposed to be this tragedy about, you know, everybody dying and you know, it's so sad. Um, but in this, it's like, well, we're just going to have a whole other character who, by you know, who in the course of everybody dying and the country falling apart wins. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, well, that's awesome. <laughs> it was, it was so awesome because, uh, the, I'm sorry to keep coming back to the last scene. It was just so good. Um, but in the last scene, when you see Iolo, like gradually and then realizing what's going on um, and mm-hmm. trying to warn everyone, and everyone's like, no, 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 everything's fine. Iolo's like, no, everything's not fine. And you, the reader, are like, oh, shit, everything is right. not fine for them. Oh, God, it was so good. It was such a good uh, yeah. character realization going along with reader realization. Mm. So good. Uh, One thing I did appreciate about that too is that Iolo Iolo at the very end is working against 
strength and patience. Yeah. But strength mm-hmm. and patience response to that is like, good job. Yeah. You figured it out. <laughs> like, you tried. No way of like working against me here. So like, I'm just happy with you, and you still get a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, I. That's this is why strength. This is why you know the book is so satisfying to me is because you know it's the story of strength and patience. And strength and patience, while complicated, is not. Uh, it's like a very attractive character because mm-hmm. it 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 cares for things and it has sort of reasonable moral values sure. and the the stuff mm-hmm. that makes it mad and the stuff that makes it sad like makes total sense and it really does try to help it's the people who it likes it's almost like strength and patience is like the reader of hamlet right and like and it mm-hmm. is inserting itself into this hamlet story and then deciding from a reader's perspective who it wants to reward for their behavior <laughs> in this hamlet story mm-hmm. and so strength and yeah. patience decides oh horatio you did pretty good you get to run off and be safe and have a great great time and maybe get with that girl maybe who knows so what you're saying <laughs> is that strength and patience is a fan fiction writer <laughs> <laughs> i well, i'm just on really- team rock <laughs> it it was really cool to realize that you weren't supposed to be on Hamlet's side at all the whole story <laughs> long. Yeah. Right. And like the side you were supposed to be on and the side that's going to win is yeah, the rock. Yeah, that was a really right. cool realization cuz oh, it's so good. Cuz cuz she does a great job of making it really unclear. Like you don't know <laughs> how it's going to shake out. Like maybe this is going to be one of those Hamlet um takeoffs where it doesn't end in tragedy and everyone lives happily ever after or something we you know i i felt like i really didn't know but the ending that she did pick was extra satisfying (laughs) Mm -hmm. it really was yeah the and 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 the gradual realization that the raven is 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 bad over the course of the book because you know to the eyes of um that all the characters in the hamlet sections the raven is their you know most valuable protector. Um, so it was, it was cool to realize that like actually the Raven is empire. Totally. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I also, I also like the, um, there's this whole other thing where among the gods, um, there's this, um, this kind of, you know, capitalist, um, consolidation going on over the long yeah. term. Yeah. And like, all the little gods are getting gradually subsumed or destroyed. <laughs> right. And there's very Getting, few like, gods. There's very few gods left because they're yeah, all it's like a god dying. monopoly. Yeah. And, it's like hostile takeovers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh that's like a whole thing that isn't really discussed ever explicitly, mm-hmm. but it's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> I actually I have a question about that that maybe maybe yeah. y'all can answer. I didn't really understand why the strength and patience of the hill made the deal with the shady dog god. That oh, it didn't I did trust. not either. I didn't either. I was wondering that too. Like, I mean, I I, I could Whiskey try to Jenny guess, but there's nothing, yeah. and it's just a it's just a plot. You know. It's just a right. it's just plot. like it. Need, like if it doesn't, then there's not the rest of the story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah right. That's that was my initial reaction. Right. And I was trying to kind of guess or make up something other than that. And I guess the best I could do would be like to say that maybe it's because maybe it's because strength and patience decided that. You know, it would be too di- like there's some line in there somewhere about like how it would be like a huge pain in the ass to get home. And so it felt mm. like stuck there. And so it needed to do something in the confines of being stuck there to make itself more powerful. And it actually, that was just a big play to make itself more powerful. Hmm. So but my take know. on that was that 
like there's a couple of things going on. So one, and this is actually a trait I find somewhat like commendable, even though it sounds like a negative trait, but um, strength and patience is very selfish. Like the whole book, it's like very worried about itself and like the people it likes. And again, I think this is, I, I don't mean this in like a purely negative way, but like it cares about what it cares about. And those are the things that it cares about. And it's not super worried about everything else. Um, and one of the like longer kind of plot arc themes of like its section is learning to extend its awareness beyond its own little rock. But that also means like learning to extend what it cares about and protects and views as like a part of itself to these humans who care for it to like, you know, the other gods who it actually considers friends to, to this sort of thing to like open up that selfishness beyond just kind of like its small little rock and like go beyond that. Um, and so my understanding of that was that there's this point in the story where it's like, well, I'm here. I'm fighting this war. I have like actually agreed to like be a part of this and help. And like part of that agreement means that like, even if I don't love everything I have to do, I'm actually like here to like help these other people. And like, I'm going to do it on my terms. I'm going to do it in a way that I think is like ultimately safe for me. And my name is strength and patience. So to me, ultimately safe means like I might get in a bind for like 500 years, but like, yeah, it's 500 years ultimately. Right. Like it thinks on such a long time scale that like being trapped for 500 years is like, that's fine. Um, yeah, I just I didn't really see an upside to right. striking that deal versus just taking things on a case by case basis, like right. handing itself over essentially to a commander it doesn't exactly. trust. Exactly, exactly. And the other thing is that it spent so much time prior to this being worried about exactly this type of deal. Yeah. Like it's not a question. Like to me, the the thing that doesn't make sense isn't the committing to helping people. It's the way in which it commits to helping people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah, a way that takes its own agency away from it. Yeah. So what I was trying to think about is like, is there some, does it know some secret that like enables it to actually be like having the upper hand here? And it's like, there's some hints that maybe its understanding of like chemistry and biology has advanced to a point where it can like actually like subvert this, this deal. But I don't know. It doesn't seem to succeed in subverting the deal, you know? Yeah. No. Right. But I, I, I guess I guess some of that was like, part of what it doing that deal allowed it to do was keep its information secret and like not give other gods the ability to do anything that it could do while also yeah. using that ability for the like aid of its side. Yeah. And it's, and then, and then come back to the fact that like, well, could it even have left? It seems like it couldn't have left at that point. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So maybe, right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's fine. It's not a huge deal. I was still, I was still generally contented with the plot. I just, mm-hmm. it spent so much time telling us that the dog god was untrustworthy, and then yeah. I was like, well, but so then, why have you trusted it? <laughs> and I think it, it does sort of half solve that by saying, strength and patience always thought that he could prevent anyone from turning him that he didn't want to fulfill the request of. But I yeah. feel like he would be smart enough to know that. You know, maybe someone will come up with a way to turn him eternally. Right, and then, exactly. Then he's in real trouble. Especially <laughs> yeah, because... Yeah, he'll be in a pickle. Yeah, a real dilly of a pickle um, for 500 <laughs> years. Um, but but no, because like he spends so much time of his section of the far distant past mm-hmm. talking about all these cases where gods like made that exactly that sort of mistake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. True. Although <laughs> True. I did, and I did really love, uh, we've talked about sort of the importance of language during this, and I really loved 
um, the rack learning other languages and then finally understanding um, like, oh, maybe mm-hmm. this dog god is not being upfront with me and <laughs> you know, secretly knowing what the people pushing the mill were talking about. I really yeah. love all that. Oh, as yeah, well. I love that. Right. I love Strength and Patience of the Hill's relationship with its followers. It's like, for example, its relationship with that one priestess in the far north. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. awesome. And its relationship yeah. with the four people that were turning it was also awesome. Yeah, I know. Yep. It's really sweet. It was really nice. Right. Team yeah, Rock. I like there was one point where he mentions like one of these four people. He's like, oh, well, she's she's one of my priests, even though no one else would ever consider her a priest. But like, yeah. obviously, for me, that's what a priest looks like. And I'm like, yep. yeah, you go rock. <laughs> Absolutely. Team Rock here. Like, Yeah, I liked how I liked how overall pragmatic it was. There's a bunch of parts in the um, in the early sections of the rock telling its story where um, it says, you know, it it. it there were many prayers that it didn't grant, but it still got mm-hmm. credit for granting. I was like, that's a good point. That's <laughs> a, mm-hmm. a really good point. It uh, could just sit there and do nothing and people would still, you know, worship yep, it. Right. Great and deal. I did, I did love that sort of like interpretation thing of like, you know, it's like, oh, people pattern match. That's what we do. And right. so we're going to try to pattern match as best as we can, even when there's no pattern to see. Yeah. Uh, so good. I, uh, I'm, so on Team Rock, it's not even funny. <laughs> yeah, and then and also, and okay. Oh, sorry, I was gonna say, and then the like the tokens, his way of speaking throughout mm. this whole time that's been so interesting, uh, mm-hmm. gets gets a big role in the final climactic yeah. showdown. Yeah. Yeah. A role, <laughs> the tokens. <laughs> a roll, a roll. <laughs> I got it. I'm now. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love it. So what? Here's one one another thing that I just wanted to bring up briefly. We don't have to like delve super into it but like there's this sort of story within a story thing going on here also that's very hamletish where the rock is describing what's happening but the people it's describing this don't know that and they're Mm -hmm. acting as though they have no idea about the story that's being told about them and so Mm -hmm. there's this like interesting disconnect that i was thinking about between the way that the characters are acting and what we know about the fact that they're actually in this story. So the, the the rock often will say, there is a story I have heard, you know, to preface a section. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of that going on. And there's an interesting difference between some of the small, there is a story I have heard and the larger narrative. And then the characters in each of those and how they act and react or don't react to the fact that they're in a story. Like Iolo, at, at first, I was kind of, basically, um, maybe the best way to talk about this is to say, like, when I first started reading this, I was wondering what kind of fantasy story it was going to be, because I had no idea. Some fantasy stories are kind of, in, include characters who are self-aware of the fact that they are in some kind of fantasy story. Who, In other words, they include characters yeah. who, like, know that there are rules operating here that maybe I understand, maybe I don't, but I'm aware of that and I'm going to live with it. And I was wondering if this was going to be a story like that or not. In other words, you know, in a creepy fairy story, for example, sometimes the characters are aware that there are creepy fairies that are trying to make a deal or whatever. And sometimes they're not. And I was wondering if this was going to be the kind of story where, you know, Iolo knows there's a god that's manipulating him or not. And there's this really interesting thing where, like, they sort of know and they sort of don't. They know that there are gods, but they're wrong about which gods there are. They know that there are deals, but they're wrong about what those deals are. They know that mm-hmm. they're in a larger narrative, but they're wrong about what that narrative is. And that mm-hmm. that's like a really cool subtext, at least to me, that, that's like going on a lot of the time. 
yeah, I totally know what you mean. Like they know that they're in the story of a succession dispute. Yeah. But I they don't really realize that they're in the story of a like godly succession dispute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, like a, a yeah. bigger Yeah, they they know mm. that they're in, in the story of this war between these two nations, each of which is supported by different gods. But they're wrong about which gods are on their side slash there aren't any. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they know that, like, you know, Mawat thinks that the whole story of, of like, Mawat thinks that there are certain rules for, like, ascending to the bench and, like, inheriting right. the position and all these right. things. And he's right that there are rules, but he's wrong about what they are and about who made them. And so it's just right. really. He's very naive in some ways. Yeah. 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 Well, I, he thinks I think he has an expectation of uh, continuity for himself that is yeah. out of line with what the story is actually doing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I just think it's really interesting how it kind of makes this subtle point about the way that we think the kinds of stories that we think we're in are not necessarily what we think they are. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I really, really enjoy. Hmm. Good stuff. So are there, so I feel a little bit like we've hit on this stuff. Are there other themes that, you know, Whiskey Jenny, Gin Jenny, you guys wanted to talk about that we, we haven't hit on yet? Because I feel like we, I kind of wrote out, like, like we've hit on the rules. We've hit on a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. I'm curious kind of what, what you guys are thinking about while reading it. Um, I think we've hit on most of the stuff that I'm looking at my notes. I think we've hit on most of the stuff that I found interesting about the book or like wanted to talk about Whiskey Jenny. I, I don't know that I... I feel like we haven't talked about um, uh, Iolo as a trans man. And yeah. I don't know that I want to because it's not really like the plot of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like that's uh, something about Iolo. I, I, my one note on this, there was a, so it's kind of a, um, like a, uh, known to be harmful trope is the sort of dramatic gender reveal where someone mm-hmm. looks at a protagonist and you often see this with um you know mulan like stories where someone's dressing up mm-hmm. as um another gender for reasons of their own but um there'll often be a reveal where someone will look at a person's body and be like oh they're it's a woman after all um and i i think Anne lecky was trying to subvert that because there is a scene where um iolo gets hurt and um the ophelia character uh, to Kaz, um, you know, takes him like back to take care of him and undresses him. And when he wakes up, she's like, Oh, so are you just dressed up like a man or are you in fact a man? And he's like, I am in fact a man. And she's like, okay, cool. Um, which is a subversion of that trope, but I'm not even really sure why it needed to be in there at all. Mm Um, I'm just not sure that that thing needed to be specifically rebuked because I think even raising the specter of that trope felt a little weird and um, prurient. Mm-hmm. I was wondering about that. I kind of feel like I don't know how I feel about that. And yeah, it's I, <laughs> I, I don't really have a take on it. I just kind of, it occurred to me that people may have different views on that scene. Um, but I really don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Any other thoughts? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm decidedly in the I don't know what I think about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, obviously don't view myself as an expert oh, <laughs> on gosh, no, any sure, of this stuff. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, which is probably why we're all a little bit like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, there was, 
there was something at the very beginning of the book where McQuat says, you know, something along the lines of like, oh, you know, I'll be able to request whatever I want so I can request that. You know, essentially, what are you saying? Like, oh, I can yeah. request that you have like a biologically male body if you would like that. Um, oh, I missed and, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah this is in the, the very, very first beginning. chapter. Yeah, he implies that he can change uh, Eola's body if, once he's the... Well, the Raven's Lease, once he's the Raven's Lease. Right, right. And Iolo's response is very much like, oh, no, I, I am who I am, and I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't need that at all. You know, kind of like, thanks, no thanks. And that was like, that was an interesting choice. One, to just like have that scene at all, especially like right at the beginning as a way of being like, by the way, the main character is mm -hmm. trans, which is really like what that scene felt like it was like setting yeah. up. Yeah, there were yeah. just times where it, it felt like she, the author was raising the specter of doing something right with Yola's gender that I wouldn't have liked. And then being like, but I'm not going to do that. Cause I know better. Right. And I don't know. It just felt a little uh, pointed in a way that I think undermined what she intended for the character, which is for him being trans to not be a big deal, which most of the time it wasn't mm -hmm. um, until it so, was. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. That's I, often I wasn't how sure I how feel, to feel about, about it. these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's, there's also, there's, there is a thing of like, you know, like the trans experience is different for different people. And, and, and sometimes I feel like when reading some of these kinds of stories, particularly by cis authors, it can feel very much like, well, I've read a couple of books about this and mm. you know, this is what the trans experience is supposed to be. So I'm going to write it in this way, which is the right way to write it. Whereas like the trans authors I've read are much more ambivalent about that experience, right? Like there is no actual right answer about whether, you know, I mean, right, like some people have surgery and some people don't. For some people, like it's a medical dysphoria thing. And for other people, it's not actually. And the trans experience is not one of like uh, physical dysphoria and feeling that you're in the wrong body. And like these things are different. And a lot of the way that we talk about trans issues, I think, especially kind of on like the, the left, center left, kind of like good liberal people, whatever, is very much in this way of like, oh, well, they were, you know, born with the brain of a man and thus like they are a man in that way, as opposed to like, well, gender is really tricky and weird and changes and, you know, it's not like you're one or the other. Um, and so from that perspective, it just felt, it felt like kind of like A for effort at times, which yes, I, it felt you know, sort of clumsily well-intentioned. Right. And, you know, which is fine. It does kind of, it kind of, for me, brought up a book um, that is a book I've talked about a lot on here um, that is just one of my favorites. I think I might even mentioned it uh, with, on my episode with you guys called um, Mission Child by oh, did, Maureen yeah. McHugh. By um, and that's one where the character, the main character in the book, um, starts off as a woman. Um, she has a child. She is like, you know, gendered as a woman and considers herself a woman. And through the course of the book, like her understanding of her own gender, both changes and also like a lot of what happens is the understanding that other characters have of her gender changes while she's not even paying a lot of attention to it um, or why, while they maybe are not paying a lot of attention to it. And it's just kind of interesting. Like I actually really liked the way that book handled that sort of like element of gender in that a lot of it was like gender's complicated. It's not everything. It's not the same for everyone at the same time. And it can like change for you over time. And that is okay. <laughs> and like, you know, your motivation for like the gender you identify with, like even while the gender you identify with might not change, like your motivation for identifying with that gender might over time too. Um, and that's often, I feel like kind of something that 
feels missing in these sort of like well-intentioned, like kind of maybe like modern left sci-fi books about gender that where like, you know, I think back to kind of maybe sort of like the eighties and nineties and the cyberpunk thing. And some, some, some of these other movements that kind of like did the stuff with gender where it's like, maybe it's like certain things, they definitely were worse about it. Right. But in, in other ways they have this kind of like messiness to it that it, mm-hmm. it, much more closely tracks my own understanding of my own gender than like this kind of like, you know, you know, it, it, it almost, <laughs> it's like, you know, we kind of have this thing of like, Oh, you're a boy or a girl. And, you know, sometimes the way that these trans experience are understood, it's like, Oh, well it's still same. You're either a boy or a girl. It's just right. like, it's that's still, not your bio- biology, but mm-hmm. yeah, it still is this yeah. like clear binary and everyone knows thing, which is like, eh, okay. that's one way of understanding this, but it's definitely not the only way. Um, which is, you know, I, I, not to say that like, Oh, bad or shouldn't have a trans main character or anything like that. Just so much as like, yeah, sometimes this can feel a little bit, a little clunky. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think maybe that it just, just also like in, in in terms of this, like, you know, read more books by trans authors and publish more trans authors as opposed to like cis authors writing about yeah, this that's, stuff. That's very much what I think about this. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like, um, that's really the thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I will, I will, I will take this opportunity to put in a plug for uh, a nice fox gambit by Yoon Ha Lee, which mm-hmm. yep. um, remains one of the best books I've read in recent years. Um, and is by a trans guy. And I think deals with, gender in a lot of really interesting ways um which you know i really need to reread the whole trilogy because it's just fantastic um but i also Mm -hmm. think it's quite matter of fact about uh non-cisgenders in in um in ways that this book doesn't quite succeed in being yeah right and we we we, so we we read the nine fox gambit for this podcast we have a few episodes on it um which are actually really fun because the like we have a guest on uh who like works in the military industrial complex as a game designer so she like had Mm -hmm. a lot to say about like the strategy and game design element uh of that book so really i i really still like those episodes because i learned so much yeah yeah that sounds awesome um but i i I totally agree. Like those, those books, the way like there's a, you know, even while there's at least in the first one, there's no specifically necessarily like trans author that I can think of. There's this experience of like this, you know, female officer with a like male officer in her head and this kind right. of like experience of identity and gender through all of that, that, it, that again gets back to this kind of like more messiness thing mm-hmm. that I really appreciated um, in those yeah, books. And it does, it does, I think even more so in the, in the subsequent two books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the, it's the understanding. Those books I haven't awesome. read the other books yet. Oh, they're so good. Cool. All right. Well, is there anything else that we should hit on at this point? I feel like we, you know, kind of maybe final, like post post talking about it, reviews of the book almost. I always kind of like to do this, like I always feel like sometimes talking about the books on these podcasts can make me like my re- my review of it will change almost. Um. Well, I I think that uh, what Whiskey Jenny said about um the second person narration making the strength and patience of the hill feel, feel present throughout the book, um, has, has slightly tipped my, I mean, again, I liked the book a lot. I had some reservations about it, but I think, um, slightly tipped the ballots more in favor of, um, that narrative choice because Mm -hmm. I had kind of missed that point. So I think, yeah, I think the discussion in general has made me feel more positive about a book. I already felt quite positive about (laughs) Matt. Cool. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I really liked talking about Hamlet because I think Hamlet is a sacred cow. I mean, in, you know, in my education, <laughs> I did a lot of like great books stuff and mm-hmm. um, like not liking Hamlet was not really something that people did. <laughs> so I appreciate that a lot. I do. I do. You know, it's very sincerely. Um, so that's like a you good, go to that's the literally kind a of public school I went to then. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, I don't think I, yeah, I don't think ahead. I read Hamlet in school. I read, I, oh, I don't think I ever did. So this is just me, you know, right. Yeah. But, but yeah, whatever. I mean, um, it's, it's just like literally a take that would never have occurred to me. <laughs> so I really liked that a lot. I really liked that a lot. Um, I do still like really like this book. Um, but I will think more about Hamlet probably as a result of this. Uh-huh. Well, I will say hearing it from the perspective of someone who did enjoy Hamlet and hearing how you enjoyed um, like seeing the little changes in this take on Hamlet gave me more appreciation for it for the for the present day stories. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, as someone who had just no like ha- literally hadn't even thought the word Hamlet until <laughs> you guys brought it up on here. It's like I, f- I feel like I'm still like, oh, I need to like rethink half this book. But it did. I, I feel like in some ways like I still have the super positive view of the book, but in a lot of ways, like reading it and having this like so thorough enjoyment of reading it, I almost like wasn't thinking about it very critically while I was reading it, which is interesting because I, I, that's not how I read most of the, like almost everything I read, I have a critical eye while I'm reading it. And it's very interesting that like I didn't while reading this book and now I feel like I have both a greater, greater critical understanding of it, but also part of me is like, oh yeah, that's right. I just like, forgot the parts that I didn't care for <laughs> yeah. like, and, and it's a, an interesting almost like strength of an author to be able to be like yeah. you know like you will like sure. the parts that you like and the rest isn't going to be like bad so yeah. much as like mm-hmm. you get to focus on what you really or what I really enjoy about it so yeah I hugely hugely recommend this book to everyone it was a lot of fun Big ups. a lot of fun to talk about it with you guys thank you yeah definitely this was great um, thank you yeah, this so was again, super fun. I yeah. I love yeah. I love it. So and final uh, answer, we all like book clubs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turns out I like books right. and talking about them. Whiskey yeah. Jenny needs to join more book clubs, I think it was the Whiskey Jenny, Whiskey Jenny, look at me. Don't join more book clubs. <laughs> Cool. Where uh, where on the internet can folks find you? Um, so the podcast is at readingtheend.com slash the podcast. Um, and I am I, Jin Jenny, am also on Twitter at Reading the End. Um, but if you have Twitter messages for Whiskey Jenny, I will pass them along to her. <laughs> we'll and if she has, nice if she has along, Twitter messages least. for you, I will pass them along to you. Right. It's like I am uh uh, you're a ghost. I'm a ghost. I was going to say, I am strength and patience, and you are my little... Um, myriad? Uh, myriad. Well, you could be myriad. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say? Yeah, you're right. That's way cool. I was going to say the little rock tokens, but yeah, myriad's way better. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Awesome. <laughs> I, I do like that if you're strength and patience, like, you can be myriad. It's like making that true in the world. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. You've made it true. Yeah. Well... Um, and we're we're at spectology.com and at spectologypod on Twitter, spectologypod at gmail.com if you want to email. So yeah, so that was this was this has been a really good time. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so thank much, you guys, guys so much for having us. Thank you for and coming. We will, well, I, it, I, you know, so we fun. really, really appreciate it. There's um, 
it, it is it makes a huge difference having really awesome smart uh interesting guests it makes it a lot mm-hmm. more fun and you know Right. <laughs> you're, like, I feel like you're kind of shading bit. Adrian over here. <laughs> no, I honestly, oh, no. to be able to not have to, you know, talk for a full two hours myself oh, has gosh, been really yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been really I, nice talking to you both. I've, I've felt, um, I don't know, it's been really nice that we've had such a flowing, natural conversation. I haven't felt like, oh God, what are we going to say now? <laughs> totally. No, yeah, we, we, we felt very nervous in advance of um, recording the first one, but uh, y'all made us feel like very comfortable and at ease. So yeah. I'm so glad. Thank Good. You. I'm very glad about that. You guys I should, like you know, uh, uh, come back, you know? We'll, yeah, yeah I was going to say, we should, we should do it again sometime. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. More crossovers. More crossovers. So, bye everyone. Thanks. Bye guys. I love how your official podcast goodbye included both of you waving. (laughs) (laughs) That is true.